0: Good morning. We'll be reading from Mark 5, 21 through 43. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus (laughs) uh, came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. and trembling with fear told him the whole truth he said to her daughter your faith has healed you go in peace and be freed from your suffering while jesus was still speaking some people came from the house of jairus the synagogue leader your daughter is dead they said why bother the teacher anymore overhearing what they said jesus told him don't be afraid just believe he did not let anyone follow him except peter james and john the brother of james which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they said, were com- At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. I've got a
1: question that may seem random, but trust me, it has some semblance of, of a point. Like what is your what is your favorite sandwich? Does anyone want to volunteer this like your favorite sandwich? BLT. A BLT. Philly cheesesteak. Philly cheesesteak. Or it ham and cheese. Simp- he's a simple man, ham and cheese. Uh, turkey avocado with Chipotle sauce. Turkey avocado with Chipotle sauce. We had ham and cheese and then turkey avocado with Chipotle <laughs> sauce. All right, yeah. No, that's all right. Like that's the beauty of a sandwich. There's no there's no, you know, can you really do it wrong? Like, it's two pieces of bread, and then at the end of the day, there's something in the middle. But, right, okay. But, like, let's think about a sandwich, right? Is what's, if a sandwich is on good bread, like, really good bread, you know, that, like, just, it takes it to, like, next level, right? The sandwich is on, like, really good bread, but what if, like, inside the sandwich is something that's just, like, disgusting? Well, then the really good bread doesn't really matter, right? But what if, like, you have, like, the most amazing inside of the sandwich, And then, you know, the cheapest possible white bread you could buy down in the shop. You know, like, there's something kind of missing. But what if that magic moment for your avocado turkey or your ham and cheese or your BLT, right, where you get, like, really, let's say, I don't really love tomatoes that much, but, like, for the sake of argument here, let's think about the BLT, right? You get, like, really nice tomatoes, like the vine-ripened tomatoes, like the nicest ones you could get in the shop, right? And really nice, like, rashers like with the great, like, you know, the really nicely seasoned and all of that. And you get really nice bread. Like, they, they work together, don't they? And they create this, like, immense, you know, like, delight for your mouth. Is that like, can you say that? I don't know. Like, is this, yeah. You know, what it, you know what I'm saying? Like, a really good sandwich is hard to beat. I said there was a point. Here's the point. Mark, when he writes, sometimes writes things like he's making a sandwich. <laughs> Like, he takes two good pieces of bread and some really nice, you know, really nice, you know, rasher and tomato or whatever, and he, and he creates these sandwiches. And a rasher is great on its own, or, or ham, is, a slice of ham is great on its own. This one I can relate to more. A slice of ham is, is great on its own, but when you put it between two pieces of nice bread, right, it becomes something else, right? It becomes this delicious sandwich. So what Mark does several times in several places throughout the book is he starts telling a story. And then he kind of seems to stop, and sometimes it's more you know, disjointed than others, but like this time, like it's not disjointed, it flows as kind of one story, one thing that's happening, but he starts telling a story, and then he goes, yeah, I'm gonna kind of sidestep and tell you this story, and then I'm gonna come back to this story. He creates what they call a Markin sandwich. <laughs> and what you hit, get then is these stories Are meant to go together. Sure, you can take them separate and they're fine. And in fact, you can, you know, they might even be delicious taken by themselves. But when you put them together, when you place them together, they season and they flavor one another. And so these stories, then, that we just read, that Taylor read for us, are linked together. And Mark has done this on purpose. They're linked together by 12 years. They're linked together by two unclean women. They're linked together by absolute desperation. They're linked together by moments of faith. They're linked together by healing. They flavor each other. And at the end of the day, at the end of the stories, what they do is they give us an incredible vision of God's kingdom. They give us a beautiful vision of God's kingdom. And so we're just going to jump right in and we're going to start talking about these stories because I'm excited to unpack them uh, with you this morning. As we read uh, the story, we find this man, Jairus, right? And then this woman, we don't get her name. We don't have any idea what her name is, but right, we find this woman and both of them are in very, very desperate straits, right? You've got this man, Jairus, his daughter, his 12-year-old daughter is dying. She's about to die. She's at the end of her, he's at the end of, of his rope, trying to help his daughter, who is dying. And, at, and in desperation, at the end of his rope, he finds himself at the feet of Jesus. And we have this woman, again, from a completely different social standing, a completely different class, completely different crowd that she runs with, because she doesn't really run with a crowd She finds herself again desperate and at the feet of Jesus. And so the first thing that I think that we see here, and I think we can all even relate to this, is this desperation often has the ability then to drive us to the feet of Jesus. And maybe you're there right now, (laughs) where you just kind of are are, are left going like, where else could I possibly turn? I'm at the end of my rope. If it's not Jesus, it's nobody. You can relate to this story. (laughs) Maybe you've been there. You've been in that place. I think these stories are deeply relatable because we've experienced that, this idea that desperation drives us to Jesus. Jairus, Jairus' daughter, this woman that, that finds herself at the, uh, you know, touching Jesus and being healed, we're all experiencing or had experiencing, experienced the smashing and shattering of hopes, of dreams, of future safety, of security. All of that was crushed and broken. Let's just kind of step back and let's, let's start with Jairus. Let's look at him. Jairus is an interesting guy, right? If you've, so if you've been w- uh, with us, you know we're walking slowly but surely through the gospel of Mark. In fact, this is one of the biggest chunks of Mark we've taken as we've been walking through it. But if you remember, like, and you probably don't, and I don't expect you to, but like, one of the details that we get in the gospel of Mark is that Jesus has been ministering in an area called at a town called Capernaum. Okay, Now, Capernaum's not a big town. All right, It's a small seaside fishing village, and Jesus has been there ministering. Now, if you remember back a couple of stories ago in Mark chapter 3, what you find is that the religious leaders in Capernaum had gotten so mad at Jesus and so fed up with his teaching, so sick of everything he was doing, that they went to the Herodians, the, basically they went to the government officials who didn't like Jesus, and they said, hey, let's, let's kill him. All right? So this is where the religious leaders in the area of Capernaum are. They're at the point where they're so sick of Jesus, they're ready to kill him. Now, in comes Jairus. And what do we learn about Jairus? Then, this is verse 22, then a a leader of the local synagogue whose name was Jairus arrived. Now, does that maybe help you to see how, Insane, what Jairus is doing right now is. How desperate Jairus is. He's been in with the crowd that's like going, let's kill Jesus. Now, we don't know how he felt about that. We don't get the backstory. Maybe Jairus was quietly, you know, with his hand in the back going, guys, maybe we should rethink that. You know, we, we don't know that. But what we know is that he's a synagogue leader, which means he's a pretty important religious leader in his small community. And people look to him and, and what he does, people, people, go, that's you know, much like a pastor or something like that. People tend to look at them as an example. And, and, and you know what? He's, he's palling around with these guys, at least, who want to kill Jesus. So we don't, again, we don't know what he's thinking, but what we do know is that he's a religious leader in Capernaum. And up to this point, all that we've read about the religious leaders in Capernaum has not been good. And so Jairus was this religious leader, but he's also a dad. And that's the thing that we learn. Jairus is a dad. He's been a dad for at least for the last 12 years. And as a parent, I know you have hopes and dreams for your kids. Maybe not specific ones exactly, but you do have at least general hopes and dreams for, for, the, for you know, the life that your kids are going to lead. You know, how many people have you ever heard say, like, I just want to give my kids a better life than I had, right? That idea, like, as parents, like, you love your kids. You want the best for them. And Jairus had hopes and dreams for his daughter, who she would marry, you know, what his grandkids would be like. And she was 12. Now, what you have to understand, too, again, backstory about being 12 years old in first century Palestine is that you're about a year away from getting married. Now, side note, we could look back, we could look down on our noses at people like that and go, how could they do that? They didn't live very long, so your life started, you know, your life experiences started much earlier than ours do, right? You know, our life expectancy is a lot longer than 40, you know, so, so, you know, they started their lives, you know, and, and things like that a lot earlier, so I just kind of wanted to, to just kind of, put that out there to kind of say, like, let's, before we get judgmental um, <laughs> about cultural norms um, and reading our uh, life expectancy onto theirs, it's just, just always a, a good thing to remember. But, but the reality is, is that, you know what? She was looking forward to it. She would have been looking forward to this. Getting married, like um, having a family, her dad would have been looking forward to it. This is a high point. You know, she's getting to a place where she becomes an adult in, in, in the Jewish culture where she is like, you know, kind of at this high point of life. And yet this 12-year-old girl is now at the lowest point in her life. And not only her, but her dad is maybe at the very lowest point in his life. And so, what we find with Jairus is that, as a religious leader, he seems like the guy maybe most unlikely to be falling at Jesus' feet. Yet as a dad, and I look at Jairus, I go, that's exactly the place, if I were him, I would be. It's just an interesting like, thinking about him and, and, and what he must have been like. We know, as a religious leader, he, he must have been a prominent figure maybe relatively well off. But here he is at the feet of Jesus, begging him to make his daughter well. Jairus isn't hedging his bets on Jesus. That's something I want us to kind of figure out. Jairus is not hedging his bets on Jesus. He has no money left to bet, right? His daughter is literally, I mean, he must know his daughter's about to die. And you know he's exhausted his money with doctors and trying to make her well. She's dying. You can bet if the doctors, though, had been able to heal her. Or maybe if she'd just gotten better naturally, he probably wouldn't have been there at Jesus' feet. But desperation has the ability to drive us to Jesus. Jesus. Now this woman, then, we find as, as Jesus is walking to Jairus' house. Again, Capernaum's not a big village, right? Okay? It, we're talking a very little town. Like it makes Moikolin look like a city, right? Okay? Like we're talking small town. It's not going to take long to walk from where Jesus is to Jairus' house. But somewhere along the way, this woman comes up to him and she touches him. And this woman has, has an issue, right? And, and our Bibles tend to sometimes kind of soften. It's just, you know, things like constant bleeding or things like this. I'm just going to, like, it's, it's a constant vaginal bleeding that she has. Now, we don't know whether it's like a perpetual period, whether it's some sort of hemorrhage. Like, it doesn't, it's not specific about that, but we do know what kind of bleeding it is. And this type of thing people would have looked at as like a sign that like maybe that God was angry with you. But not only that, it would have made her unclean. Look, I have no context or insight into this, so I'm just going to leave it at like, this is the problem she had. I can't empathize. I don't understand. I don't pretend to. But probably half of us can probably empathize with her more about what this is like. She has tried for 12 years to get well she's tried for 12 years to get well now i find it interesting and i think it is as you read the story that she had been trying for 12 years to get well and jairus's daughter was 12 years old now some people have tried to make a big deal out of that tried to make some connection i think really the simple answer is Marcus is trying to make sure we link the two stories together. I don't think there's some deep theological significance. Some people read into this and it just gets weird. I don't think we need to go there. I think we can just say, Mark is a good author, that, that first off, this is the reality. She's 12 years old and this lady suffered for 12 years. But I think also too, Mark is mentioning those details to make sure we know to link the stories together. a so side note there for you. But she's tried for 12 years to get well. Now we don't know how old she is. It's very possible that this is something that happened when she reached puberty. And if that's the reality, then basically half of her life, she's had this condition. And what we can say is, most likely, nobody, no man has ever wanted to marry her. Just, like, Now, we're not gonna dive into the cultural realities of, uh, of first century Palestine too much. But just to say, carrying on the family name is a really important thing in first century Palestine. And it, it is a male-dominated culture, patrilineal. We won't get into that, the patriarchy, patrilineal, what, what the difference is there. But, but suffice it to say, carrying on that name, carrying on a family name is really important. And, and again, even too, this woman is ritually unclean. She can't go worship at the temple. And so you can imagine she's not on the top of people's lists of who to marry. That's the sad reality. Now, there's also the possibility that this came on later in life. And, you know, Jesus argues with the disciples, or not the disciples, with the religious leaders at one point, about divorce, right? They come to him about divorce. And they say, hey, Moses said we could write a certificate of divorce for whatever we wanted, right? And Jesus then says, Yeah, it's because you guys are hard-hearted jerks. Like, essentially, is what he says to him. But, like, let's just say that's the culture. That's how people view it. And you can bet, then, if she gets this problem, what her husband is going to do. If he's in that culture, and you know what? There, There were kind people back then, loving people back then, but we could imagine probably what would happen. It doesn't seem like she's married, As he may have said, here's your certificate of divorce. Thank you very much. I will be off. Either way, she's at the very bottom of society. She is the most vulnerable of vulnerable in Palestine. She is ceremonially unclean, which means nobody wants to be around her. She's probably not married, or it certainly doesn't seem like she's married, which means there is no safety net for her. Whatsoever. If anything happens, if somebody doesn't, you know, take pity on her and give her some food or something like that, she's going to die. That's the harsh reality that this woman is facing. She is miserable, she's broke, she's broken, she's unclean, she's poor vulnerable now i i felt like it was really important that we talk just for a second about cleanliness because that's something we don't understand right i mean how many of you guys make sure to live ritually clean like i'm gonna guess probably none of us uh right like that we make the effort to make sure we are ritually clean according to the old testament like I don't think we have to do that, right? That's not something Jesus says we need to keep up, right? I mean, if anything, it's in Mark that Jesus declared all foods clean and things like that, right? So here's what we have to understand just, just I think it's really, again, really important to wrap our heads around this. Because when we start saying, like, oh, she was unclean, like, we don't, in our culture, understand what that means, right? But if you go back to that book of the Bible that very few of us read on a regular basis, Leviticus, <laughs> You actually learn, and this is something I think is important. Those books, sometimes we think that they're boring, but they actually give us really important perspective on who God is, what God is like, and what God expects. And one of the things about Leviticus that comes through over and over and over is that God is holy, right? That God is, is something other than <laughs> you, you and me. He is, like, he is something holy, completely different. That God is Perfect, that God is holy. And and the problem that Leviticus is solving is how do those of us who are not perfect, how do those of us who are not sinless, how do those of us who don't always do the right thing, who sometimes make a mess of our lives, how do we come before a holy God? That's the problem Leviticus is trying, is teaching us, you know, teaching the ancient Israelites how to solve, right? And so you have these laws about like what makes you unclean. But here's the thing about being unclean. Unclean does not necessarily mean sinful. This woman is not having this problem because she is somehow a worse sinner than everyone else and God is punishing her. That is not what it means when it says she is unclean. What it means is she is not allowed. So holiness, when you are unclean, ritually unclean, you were not allowed to go into the temple where God's presence most fully dwelt, right? It wasn't that God wasn't with his people always, but that the temple was a place where God especially, extra specially, his glory dwelt. And so people who were ritually unclean were not allowed to go into the temple. And the cleanliness laws had to do for the most part, basically with life and with death. <laughs> they dealt with when it came to ritual purity and like, You know, you as a person, whether you were ritually clean or pure, it had to do with, for the most part, with things that dealt with life. So birth, like, right, if you gave birth, you became unclean for a time. It's not like, oh, well, when a woman gives birth, now she's sinful. No, it's just like, it's one of these, like, and again, we could probably talk for minutes upon minutes about these sorts of things um, or hours upon hours um, I would run out of my expertise very quickly if we went hours and hours. But, uh, but, but just to say, being unclean does not mean you are sinful. Now, if you murdered somebody, that's sin, and it also makes you unclean because now you're around a dead body. But, but to say, for the average person, you know, like for, again, you read these Old Testament laws, right? And you can be like, I don't understand this. Why would this be, you know, that, you know, so a woman who had her period, like she's unclean for a period of time. Or like there were ways that men were made unclean for a period of time. And it's not like, oh, you're sinful. You should feel guilty and terrible. It just says like, just wait a, wait a few days, you know, maybe take a bath, things like that. And then you can go to the temple again. You're clean, like, right? Okay, so again, I, I, I've labored that point to say this woman is not somehow some worse sinner than everybody else. She's, just, she's now perpetually unclean because she has this bleeding. And blood, uh, again, is connected with life and with death, which then, from the Levitical law, makes you unclean and unable then to enter in most fully where God dwells. Because holiness and uncleanliness do not meet. They cannot go together. It is dangerous when those two come together because God is so pure and holy. All right, so um, Gordon Wenham puts it this way. Theology, and maybe I could have just read this and we could have been done, but theology, not hygiene, is the reason for the the cleanliness laws. The unclean and the holy must not meet. Okay, and so in this, Something can make you unclean. But this is going to be important for later. Objects cannot make you clean. They can only make you unclean. (laughs) Or people cannot make you clean. They can only make you unclean. Right? So if somebody touches a dead body and then touches you, you are now unclean. But somebody touches a dead body and I say, well, I have it and I touch them, they're not made clean. Does that make sense? This is important. So things can make you unclean, but objects can't, and people can't make you clean, all right? So that's just, that'll be important for later. Just put that in your back pocket, all right? So coming back to this woman, she's desperate. Everything she's tried has not worked. She's gone to the right doctors. She's, gone, she's exhausted all of her options, and like Jairus, She feels, where else can I go? Here's this guy, Jesus. And I've heard he can heal people. And so she does what she should not have done. She crowds into the group of people and she touches Jesus. She's unclean. She was supposed to stay away. She was supposed to announce she was there so that everybody could back up. But she sneaks up and she touches Jesus. Here she is at the feet of Jesus, touching his robe, pressing through the crowd with the faith that Jesus can make her well. Both of them, in their desperation, are driven to Jesus, believing that he can make them well. Jairus believes he can make his daughter well. The woman believes that Jesus can make her well. They're two very different people. (laughs) And this, I think, is important to note. They're two very different people from very different worlds. Even though they're both Jews, they share almost nothing in common except that they were both so desperate they needed, they knew they needed Jesus. And it was one of the things, some of the early church fathers, as I was reading, pointed this out. This is a picture of the church. It's people who know where else could I turn? Where else could I turn? And we come to Jesus in our desperation from all walks of life, and we unite under the power and the lordship of Jesus. So we all come to Jesus through our different circumstances, but pretty much all of us come to Jesus knowing something needs to change. We know something needs to change and that there must be something that can fix our broken world. And maybe you have tried, like this woman or like Jairus, you've tried everything else possible under the sun To solve the things, the the problems that you inherently feel that we know in this world, the tensions that we live with, the pain and the anguish that we live with, the brokenness of our world. And we've thought, if I could just have this thing, then it would be fixed. And we get it and we go, that didn't fix it. (laughs) Or we just think, if we just elect the right politicians, then all everything will, you know, you know, they'll be able to kind of smooth everything out, sort everything out. Well, we know that's obviously you know ridiculous. We've tried it, we've been there, and we find ourselves kind of at the end of our rope, I think. Even if like you're not going through a terrible circumstance, maybe even just cognitively, you find yourself at the end of your rope going, I've tried everything, and it's not working. And so I just want to ask this question. What has brought you here? <laughs> and what are you holding on to? What in your life brought you here? But also, I think, what are the things you're still holding on to, hoping, well, maybe this will help, right? These guys are at the end of the road. They've tried everything. They've got nothing left. But often, we can still, you know, like most of us, even if we're poor, we can still afford to go, you know, retail therapy at least at pennies, you know, or something. You know, like, they're, like we can still kind of cling to something in our, in our Western world. What is it? Is there anything you're still clinging to? What has brought you to the feet of Jesus? Because neither Jairus or the woman come to Jesus, I don't think, in great faith, They come to Jesus in desperate faith. They come to Jesus because they desperately need Him and they reach out trusting that He could do something. And we too probably have come to Jesus in a similar way. We reach out for Jesus like a falling man would a branch. And I think sometimes we think we need to have this great, enormous faith for God to accept us. And I think the reality, that one of the things that this story teaches us is that that's not, that's not true. <laughs> the little faith that we may have, we can come to Jesus with that, and it is enough. Like a man falling off the cliffs of Moher, Right? You just picture you were up there taking a selfie of yourself and you lose your balance, right? You start to fall. And yet you see a branch just dangling. Do you, have to, do you have to have great faith in that branch? Or in desperation, do you just reach out and grab it and hope for the best? I mean, let's be honest. That's probably the way most of us come to Jesus. And that's okay. Because then we learn that that branch can hold us. We learn that that branch is, is what will save our lives, what will rescue us. We didn't know necessarily at first whether for sure it will hold us, but then we find that it will. And so, once we've done that, I think we have to ask the question then, what's next? Once I figured out the branch can hold me, like what's next, right? Is that all we needed Jesus for? (laughs) Or is Jesus more than just some sort of branch or magic healer? Because honestly, this lady that comes to Jesus, most people think he, she's probably looking at him more like a magic healer. <laughs> right? And so if she can just touch the hem of his garment, then all of a sudden, magically, she'll be healed. Right? But she has enough faith to go, he can heal me. And then her issues, I think, get corrected. <laughs> you know, like, like, she comes to Jesus with what faith that she has. And and so I think it's important that we ask this question. What do we need Jesus for? Is it just to heal us of our problem? Is that it? Is it just, you know what, like, I've got this issue. I just want Jesus to deal with that. Once he deals with that, fine, great. You know, like, is that it? Like, I just need to solve this one problem. And then, you know, Jesus, if you can just fix this for me, that'd be great. Or... Is this story about something bigger than just Jesus healing somebody of a sickness? If I'm asking this question, you probably know the answer, uh, or at least what I think. What if Jesus actually offers something much better than just fixing our problems in the right here, right now? What if this story isn't about if I just have enough faith and I come to Jesus, then he'll heal me of my disease? Sometimes I think we can, get, like, we can take stories like this and go in a really unhealthy direction with them. We can start saying like, if you just believe hard enough, then Jesus will cure your sickness. Well, What happens when he doesn't? Does it mean you didn't have enough faith or Jesus doesn't love you enough? or what, like, I think we have to be careful. And actually, I think when we do that with stories like this, we actually sell the story short. We sell what Mark is trying to communicate here short. Because what Jesus, what Jesus is trying to say here, I think through his actions, what Jesus is doing here is so much bigger than just saying, I want to fix your problem in the here and now. It's like, I, I have a bigger vision, a bigger picture, because do you know what? That little girl died again. She's not still kicking around. Like, she's dead. That woman, she died, right? Yeah, she got healed in the moment, everything like that, but she's dead, I think Jesus is trying to give us a bigger vision. He's trying to open up our minds to see that there is something even bigger than just solving your right here, right now problems. There is a new vision of reality, a new way to be human. These healings are not an end to themselves. They are a signpost to something bigger. Because you know what? Lots of people in Palestine were desperately sick. Lots of people in Palestine were malnourished and died. Palestine was one of the poorest places in the Roman Empire. So all the things that go along with with poverty and malnourishment, they're happening. And Jesus didn't go around like Oprah, like, here's your healing, here's your healing, here's your healing. You know, like, that's not what happened. Jesus healed specific people. Sometimes he even healed groups of people. But he didn't heal all of Palestine. Right? Right? Lots of people in Palestine were desperately sick. Lots of people had dreams dashed through problems. There were lots of people who were perpetually unclean. And most of them never received a healing from Jesus or were raised from the dead. This story is not a promise that in life Jesus will take away the problems, all of your problems. Okay? And it's, it's, it's important that we... Realize that. These healings in this passage are signposts pointing, I think, to two things. Who Jesus is and the kingdom he is bringing. And so our faith must seek not only the work of God in our lives, but to know Jesus and to be like him. I just want to talk for a minute before, like, about the kingdom that he is bringing. <clears throat> Because I think this is important, that we see the vision that the Gospels give to us about the kingdom that Jesus is bringing. The goal of the kingdom, I think, one of the main goals of the kingdom is a world where everyone knows Jesus, where everyone is like Him, and everyone gets to do what He does. This is a world where everything has been set right. It's a world where where evil is fully depleted defeated, and perfect peace reigns. This is what we see in Genesis 1 and 2 at the beginning of the Bible, right? Everything is in right relationship with each other. There's nothing wrong. There is no evil in the world. All is at peace or shalom. And then very quickly, Genesis chapter 3, you know, all the way through Revelation, we see what happens when people go their own way, when they move east of Eden or when, you know, like all of that... um, it's just, it's, it's mess after mess, right? And Jesus came and began to undo that mess. And in Revelation, we find out Jesus will return and once and for all, completely get rid of that mess and all will be set right. And so the kingdom of God then is one of peace. It's one of shalom. And if you, you see here, uh, Jesus says to the woman, go in peace. She's never experienced peace. She doesn't know what peace is. Can you imagine the significance of that moment when she hears from Jesus, go in peace? And I think so much of like that's what we long for, isn't it? We long to hear those words and for them to be a reality. Go in peace. And this isn't just the absence of war. This idea of shalom is completeness or wholeness. And it has this idea, and I've said it a million times and I'll say it a million more. The idea of peace is so big in the Bible because it has this idea of completeness, of wholeness, of, of perfect and right, correct, complete relationship with God which leads then to complete and whole and right relationship with myself, how I view myself, how I see myself, who I am. For those of you that struggle with self-image, this is this is like Jesus is offering peace that says you don't have to struggle like this. God loves you. He cares for you. It's peace with yourself. It's peace with others. Maybe some of you have a lot of like relational problems with other people. But God wants to set that right and to bring peace in in our relationships. This woman had no peace with herself. She had no peace with others. She had no peace with the world. And this peace, the shalom that Jesus is offering this woman is right relationship with God, with herself, with ourselves, with, with others, with the world. With God's creation. This is the peace that Jesus came to bring. This is the peace that He offers. The kingdom of God is one of peace. Deep down, this is what we're all longing for. This is the world Jesus came then and previewed for us, it's the kingdom that He came to bring. And in this story, we get a glimpse into the kingdom of God and what it is like. And it is a signpost pointing to the fact that the way the world is is not the way it should be and not the way it will always be. So let's come back to cleanliness. (laughs) Jesus is the only one who can make us clean. And I love this in the story. We see this in the story. I told you before, and I said it was important, put it in your back pocket, right? That things that are unclean can make you unclean, right? You touch something unclean, it makes you unclean. But touching something clean will not make you clean. With an exception. The first one is actually in Isaiah chapter 6, which I think is interesting. interesting. It's where we start to get a glimpse that perhaps maybe there is something that could make us clean. In Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 7, I printed it out on a piece of paper, so I've cheated, but go ahead and, yeah, do turn, turn there. I'll start reading. We haven't got, the, we, won't, we won't have gotten to the important part yet, but I want to put it in context. It was in the year King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. And as we know, that can be a very scary thing, right? I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Attending him were mighty seraphim, each having six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. Yep, that's in the Bible. They were calling out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Their voices shook the temple to its foundations and the entire building was filled with smoke. And then I said, and I love how the New Living Translation puts this. Then I said, "It's all over. I'm doomed. For I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips and I live among a people with filthy lips. Yet I have seen the king, the Lord of heaven's armies. He has seen God and he's scared," which we talked about the fear of the Lord, right, a couple of weeks ago. I'm doomed. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal he had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. So this coal had been in God's presence. It had been with God. It was, a, it was a holy object. It was an object that had been made holy. One seraphim flew to me with a burning coal he had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. He touched my lips with it and said, See, this coal has touched your lips Now your guilt is removed and your sins are forgiven. Something clean has now made Isaiah clean. He can stand before God's presence. This is unique. This is new. This doesn't happen. We come to the story of Jesus. And Jesus should have been over and over and over and over and over made unclean. But yet what happens Perpetually throughout the story of Jesus, Jesus touches people and he doesn't become unclean. Jesus touches people who are unclean and they become clean. And I think we see it so clearly in this story. If you were somebody in Palestine and you touched a dead body, which Jesus does, right? So this girl is dead. Jairus' daughter dies. I know we, we read that earlier in the story and I know I haven't kind of we haven't read it again. But right as we read the story, we see Jairus' daughter, daughter dies. And everybody laughs at Jesus when he says, no, it's fine, she's just sleeping. Jesus knows she's dead, but Jesus knows he's going to raise her from the dead. And, and Jesus is the one who can take death and just turn it into sleep. And he walks up to the girl, and presumably he touches her. Even being in the presence of, the de- of a dead body would have made him unclean. But What happens? He says to her, little girl, I say to you, get up. And what was unclean becomes clean. What was dead becomes alive. Jesus makes clean the unclean. Jesus brings life out of death. And with this woman who was unclean, she is now clean. Jesus takes that which is Unclean and makes it clean. Faith in Christ makes us clean and gives us peace. Jesus should have been made unclean by all the pure impurity he's touching on a regular basis. But rather, he makes those things, those people, clean. Jesus becomes the embodiment of God's holiness. And on the cross, we see that Jesus defeats the kingdoms of darkness, the ones who are responsible for sin and death and sickness. That's what the kingdoms of this world bring. That's that's the story of, of, of the kingdoms of this world, death and destruction and disease and pain. And Jesus defeats them on the cross. And we can trust Jesus in his victory. We can live in the kingdom of Christ now and look forward to the future when Jesus comes in his fullness. Now, as we close, what I want to do is I want to come back to that phrase, which well done, Taylor. You said it perfectly. Well done. Uh, okay. Well, yeah. Anyway, this is a really, really cool phrase, right? So, so my Bible, I've got the NLT here in front of me. It translates that, little girl, get up. This gets translated different ways. But here's what here's the important thing to know about that phrase. It's a phrase of endearment. It's not just like, hey, you girl, get up. If Jesus were, were you know, in my house or something like that, you know, and things like it might be like, sweetheart, it's time to get up. It's gentleness, it's endearing. Sweetheart, it's time to get up. And he reaches into death and brings life. Jesus is calling you and me out of sleep. He's calling you and me out of death and into life. He's taking our uncleanliness, our sin and our guilt and our shame, and, and he carries it. He is making us clean. Jesus makes us clean he brings us into new life. And we're going to take communion here in a few minutes. Tiffany's going to come up and, and, and sing a song. And, and then after that, um, Luke's going to walk us through uh, communion. But I, as I was just thinking about this, I was thinking about how at communion, we are invited to wake up and to eat, right? Jesus says to this girl, like, it's time to get up. And then he says, hey, give her something to eat. You and I then have the, op- the opportunity at communion to eat and to remember the bread of life. We eat and we find nourishment in Christ, the bread of life. Little one, it's time to wake up. So I just want to finish with saying this. If you need prayer, we want to pray with you. It doesn't have to be me. It can be somebody else. but, But if you need prayer, we want to pray with you and hey, look, I'll be up over here and I'm, I'm happy to pray with you if you need somebody to pray with. If you need to give your life to Christ, look, we want to help you with that too. We're happy to do it. If you want to be like, what's the next step in, in, in becoming more like Jesus, experiencing the peace of Jesus, look, we want to help you with that. That's what we're here for as a community of, of people who gather around the person and the work of Jesus and follow Jesus. And so I just want to encourage you to take that next step to say, what does it look like for me to reach out to Jesus, to see him as the one, my only hope, and to find life. So with that said, I'm just, I'm going to pray for us. Uh, and then again, Tiffany's going to sing the goodness of God, uh, and we can sing along with her. Uh, so let's pray. Heavenly Father.